The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Let me start with this question. How do we get to know a person? I mean, really get to know them. Well, obviously, we really get to know people by living life with them, right? By walking through life with them. Let me tell you a little bit about my friend Nick. I got to know my friend Nick in college, and I learned several things about Nick. One of the things that I learned about Nick was that Nick was a very trusting guy. Sometimes you could even call it gullible. When Nick and I would go out to clubs or if we went to parties, I would, I would, I would say, Hey, Nick, you see that girl over there? I'd pick like the prettiest girl in the whole place. So I was talking to her, and she said she thinks you're really cute. And uh, his response every time was, really? Yeah, yeah, go, go dance with her. And so he'd go over and he'd kind of just be in her vicinity. And uh, the other thing I learned was Nick is not a good dancer, right? Like he would dance kind of like he had a scratch on his back or something. That he couldn't, and then he'd just sort of sit there like this. And Nick was also shy. He would never talk to the girl. And so I would do this to Nick every week. I'd say, hey, you see that real pretty? She really likes you. And he would, again, really? Yeah. And then he'd go dance with her like this. Nick and I actually are my, my junior year of college room together. And I learned that Nick really likes 80s music, which I don't care for too much. But also that Nick is addicted to Coke. This is actually one of the funniest stories or memories I have of Nick. Uh, one night, uh, well, we, we just moved into our new room in the fraternity house. And we had these loft beds that sat about four feet from the ceiling. And when we first moved in, Nick put in a shelf next to his bed. And I thought, you know, that's a really good idea. Put your alarm clock up there. And that's what he did. He put his alarm clock up there. And I remember that night we turned off the lights and I said, good night, Nick. He said, good night, Dan. And then I hear this click pop. And I, what is that, Nick? It's a Coke. What, what are you doing? And he put this shelf up so that he could set his Coke up on it. And throughout the night, periodically, I don't know if it was sleeping while I did, but he would drink the Coke at night. And so I really got to know Nick. And even when Trish and I were in St. Louis in seminary, we became very good friends with him and his wife. He became a Christian and loves the Lord and has three boys. He might be here next week. And so if he is, you can offer him a Diet Coke. He's, he's gone diet. But you get to know people by walking through life with them, right? In the passage we're looking at, we're looking at the life of Jacob in Genesis. And Jacob had left for Haran 20 years earlier. And when Jacob left for Haran, when he left his family's house and went to Haran, he didn't know God. He knew about God. Uh, he had heard stories from his father, Isaac, but he never really knew God. God was like this figure, like, you know, like your great uncle who fought in the war that you've never met. You know a lot about him, but you don't actually know him. That's who God was to Jacob when he left his hometown and went to Haran. But over the next 20 years of Jacob being in Haran, through trials, through frustration, through a waiting game of going back home, in those 20 years, which the scripture really doesn't talk about that much, but in those 20 years of trials, Jacob is transformed. 
He begins to know God personally, not only as this entity who's distant and far off, who's not really personal, but he gets to know him personally, not just know about him. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the fruit of that. If you would open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31, we will be starting on in verse 42. It's page 26 in your red Bible. Um, Again, if you don't have a Bible, you might want to sneak back there and pick one up. But we're going to start in Genesis 31, verse 42. And just to to give you the, the recent future, in Genesis 31, Jacob and his wives and his kids, his family, escape from Haran, escape from Laban, his father-in-law, and they're fleeing to the promised land. And Laban, his father-in-law, chases after Jacob and and his family with a posse of these warriors to go and overtake them. He, He finally overtakes them, and they have this dispute in which Laban accuses him of stealing his God. Jacob didn't. He was proved innocent. And then, and then Jacob unleashes 20 years of frustration. And then they're sitting there. And this is what happens next. Read along with me, if you would. Genesis 31, verse 42, through the end of the chapter. Jacob, talking to Laban, says this. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these, my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant. You and I. And let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mitzpah. For he said, the Lord watched between you and me when we are out of one's another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren. And his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your text, Lord, we know that all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, 
and righteousness. Even passages that we read of covenants being made between two parties, God. And so we pray that you would teach us through your word, God. That you would rebuke us where we need rebuking. And that you would train us in righteousness, Lord God. That you might be our ultimate joy. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what did Jacob learn in this school of hard knocks? What did Jacob learn in his 20 years in Haran, working and serving for wicked Laban? What did he learn? Well, what we'll see is that Jacob learned a lot. And those 20 years of waiting, or seemingly waiting, was totally worth it. Because he not only knew of God, now he knew God personally. And my hope and my prayer is that we, as we go through the trials of this life, just like Jacob did, that we too would come to know God with a deeper intimacy. That we would know his goodness and his love and his grace towards us. And that's my prayer as we look through this passage. And so let's look and see what Jacob had learned in those 20 years in Haran. First, we see that Jacob learns that the Lord is the great provider. The Lord is the great provider. As we look at these passages, we'll actually kind of skip through Genesis 31 to see how these things are evidenced in Jacob's life. And we certainly see that this is evidence in his life, that he knows the Lord as the great provider. As we look through it in verse 9, Jacob tells his wives, Laban's daughters, he said, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. His wives, Laban's daughters, in verse 16, confess the same thing. They say, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. And then in verse 42, in today's passage, a a verse that we will look at a lot. Jacob again acknowledges God as the great provider. He says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. And so Jacob and his wives recognize that the Lord is the great provider. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute. If you know the story, Jacob worked very hard to get his finances. You work very hard, don't you? You work very hard to get the money that you earn. And so you might say, God doesn't give me the money. I work for it. I make it. I worked hard for it. And so how could Jacob, who worked very hard, as he described previously in this passage, credit his wealth to God. How could he do that? Well, let me ask you this question. Who gave Jacob breath? Who gives you breath? Who gave Jacob these astounding shepherding talents and abilities? Who gives you your talents and abilities? When I was growing up, when I was in high school or elementary school, they had this thing called the gifted program. And the gifted program was for kids smarter than me. <laughs> and I loved, uh, so what they would do is the teacher would come into our classroom, we'd all be working, and, and all the gifted kids would stand up and walk out, and, and, and they would go and do their own thing for smart people, whatever that is, I don't know. But I love the name, the gifted program, because it acknowledges that their intelligence is a gift, Right? Who is it a gift from? They probably wouldn't say that. But who is their gift from? It's a gift from God. God had given them that intelligence. And yet the very gift that God had given to them needed to be developed. 
That's why they had special classes for them, to develop those gifts. In the same way, God has given all of us talents. All of us are in the gifted program of some way, shape, or form. All of you have been gifted by God to serve in your jobs. Maybe you are a people person. Maybe you are a business-minded person. Whatever it might be, God has gifted you that you might have finances, that he might provide for you abundantly. And so we see the Lord provides for us through our talents and abilities, as well as through ordinary means. Now, I just want to take a sidebar and talk about how Christians will often misuse passages like this. You know, people will look at these passages of Jacob and say, look, God wants all Christians to be rich, right? He wants all Christians to be filthy rich. And if you just have enough faith, right, like Jacob, who was rich and drove camels, we'll drive camels to church, right? We'll be rich. But the only problem with that are people like Jesus, (laughs) And the disciples, who obviously were men of great faith, but also extremely poor. And so how are we to understand passages like this? How are we to understand the finances that we have or the finances that we don't have? Well, I want to make this proposition to you. And these are in my own words, and it will be up here as well. The amount of wealth that the Lord has provided for you through hard work, through honest work, has been foreordained to serve his divine purpose of redemption. Let me read it again. The amount of wealth that the Lord has provided for you has been foreordained to serve his divine purpose of redemption. Let me give you Jacob as an example. Why was it that God made Jacob so wealthy? Well, there's several reasons, but one of them was because he was making him into a great nation. He had 12 sons. You need a lot of finances to feed 12 sons, don't you? And grandchildren and daughters, and they were going to become a great nation. So God was providing the finances to become a great nation. God also provided that nation with great wealth that they might be a witness to the world of the goodness of the Lord their God. You see, it's the same for you and me. In the kingdom of God, we need rich Christians and we need poor Christians. We need Christians that have white-collar jobs. We need Christians that have blue-collar jobs. We need Christians that live in the suburbs. We need Christians that live in the inner city. Because God is using each of us as his agents of redemption in whatever economic class he calls us to. And so you see, the amount you get on your paycheck is ordained by God. To be used as agents of his redemption in the place that he calls you to be. And so we see, Jacob acknowledges, as we should, that the Lord is the great provider. Secondly, Jacob learns in his 20 years that the Lord is awesome. (laughs) In verse 42 and 52, Jacob uses this really interesting name for God. He calls God the fear of Isaac. The fear of Isaac, it could also be translated the awesome one of Isaac. All the translations, for the most part, translate the fear of Isaac because we have lost the sense of what awesome means, right? We will say, I had an awesome day today. What does that mean? Well, it means it was a sunny day. I was happy, right? But by awesome, he's talking about the power of God. You know, we don't think of it as having an awesome day, but think of the power, the awesomeness of an earthquake or a tornado or a hurricane. 
I think the best illustration of the awesomeness of God is when Moses, who wrote Genesis, uses this word again in Exodus. The next time he uses it in Exodus chapter 15, the situation is that the Lord has sent plagues upon Egypt. He has demonstrated his power. He has he has killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. The Lord has brought his people in an exodus out of Egypt as they are exiting The Egyptian army, the greatest, most powerful, strongest army in the entire world, comes after these poor Israelites. And the Lord parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk through. And after they walk through, the the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world, comes in, and the Lord closes the water and crushes the greatest army on the face of the earth. After that episode... In Exodus 15, it says this. It says, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan, where they're headed, have melted away. Terror and dread. That's our word right there. That's the Hebrew word that's used for fear back in Genesis 31. Dread. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. We have an awesome, powerful God that is worthy of our fear. I don't know about you, but I do not fear the Lord God like I should. I don't think our society fears like the Lord like it should, or even our church fears the Lord like it should. And so I want to take... Three reasons from this passage why we should fear the Lord, all right? Why should you fear the awesome God of the universe? First off, the Lord is watching. In verse 42, Jacob says, God saw my afflictions. The whole 20 years that Jacob was there, he may not have seen God every day, but he says, the Lord saw my affliction. Verse 48, Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mitzbah, which means watchtower. For he said, the Lord watched between you and me when we are out of another's sight. Laban got this part right. God sees us even when nobody else does. God sees us when we are alone at the office or at home or in our car or in the bedroom or the bathroom. God sees us all the time. Now, this would not be so bad if it weren't for the next thing that displays the awesomeness of God. And that is that the Lord is not only watching, the Lord is judging. Again, verse 42, Jacob says to Laban, God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. God is judging the heart and the actions of Laban and rebukes him. In verse 53, Laban says, the God of Abraham and God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore, he agreed to that part. Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. And so the Lord not only sees our secret actions, the Lord judges our actions. Now, if you are intelligent at all, if you are at all self-aware, if you're at all honest, this would put the fear of God in you, wouldn't it? That God is always watching and judging your actions. The God who destroyed the Egyptian army, who 
conquered the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Persians, the one who smolted Sodom and Gomorrah. That God is watching every action you do, and he is judging. Wow. (laughs) The awesomeness, the fear of God rises to the top. But God's awesomeness doesn't stop there. God's awesomeness continues into his grace. You see, the Lord is not only watching, he's not only judging, the Lord is defending his people. Again, as we look through this passage, we see time and time again, Jacob is defended by the Lord. In verse 7, Jacob says to his wives, your father has cheated me and changed my ways ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Verse 24, Jacob flees. Laban and his posse are coming after him. And God came to Laban, it said, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Don't entice him back. Don't hurt him. He's saying, you mess with Jacob, you mess with me, right? Laban confesses that a few verses later in 29 when he says to Jacob, you know, it is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night. God is defending his people. And then even in the covenant, of this passage, we see continued defense of Jacob as they make this covenant, this pact of non-aggression towards one another, where they agree not to pass over the heap of stones to harm one another. And so God is defending his people. And we see this throughout the scriptures, that God defends his people. But here's the most amazing thing. If you're here today, and you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you not only know of Him, but you know Him personally, if He is your Savior, Jesus is defending you constantly in heaven. Constantly in heaven. He is at your defense all the time. Matter of fact, there is a chain reaction. When you sin, Jesus is defending you in the heavenly realms. Does that sound crazy? Let's look at 1 John. 110 says this, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him God out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, which we will, we have one who speaks to the father in our defense. So who is that one that speaks in our defense? Who is the one that is our advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. It uses this word here, atoning sacrifice. What does it mean that Jesus atones for our sin? Well, if you look up the definition, what it will say is that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. Atone means the wrath of God was satisfied. And so when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God that was to be poured out upon you for your sin. The same wrath that was poured out on the Egyptian army, the same wrath that was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah, is the same wrath that is to be poured out upon you. And when you sin, Satan, our great enemy, one who is craftier than Laban, one who is more deceptive than Laban, one who is more wicked than Laban, goes to the God who he knows sees all things. 
and judges all things and says, look what Dan has done. Look how he has messed up again. Crucify him. He's a mess. But then the defense kicks in. Jesus says, nope. Look at my wrists. Look at my side. Look at my feet. I have already bore the wrath for his sin. And so the Lord is our great defender. He defends us whenever we sin, saying, do not pour out your wrath on Dan. Do not give him the judgment he deserves because I have taken it on his behalf. So Jacob learns that the Lord is a great provider. He sees that the Lord is an awesome God, seeing, judging, and defending. And finally, Jacob learns that the Lord alone is God. And we see the fruit of it in this covenant. As they are wrapping up the covenant and sealing up, this is what Laban says, verse 53. If you could look with me, I won't skip a lot in this point. Verse 53, Laban says this, The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. What, what Laban is doing is just customary for the time. When they're making a covenant, you have both parties there making an agreement, but you're also invoking both gods of both parties to come and oversee this covenant. So Laban says, how about the God of Nahor, which is my God, and the God of Abraham, which is your God, let him oversee the promise that we are making here today. But Jacob's response is amazing. (laughs) It's fascinating. Look at Jacob's response. We'll start beginning in verse 53 again. Laban says, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. Then here it is. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. That's his his name for the Lord. The fear of his father, Isaac. But that wasn't one of the gods that, that Laban named. That wasn't one of the names that Laban gave. And so why does he swear, swear in the fear of Isaac? Well, you see, the God of Laban was clearly a different God. It was the, the God of Laban. The, the God of Abraham was a little bit confusing because Abraham was an idolater before he met the Lord. And so what Jacob is doing here is he is being crystal clear and he is taking a stand. He is saying, he is declaring That there is only one God, and it is the Lord God. You see, Isaac knew no other gods in his life. Isaac was certainly messed up, but he only worshipped the Lord as God. And Jacob is taking a stand here and saying, There is only one true God, the Lord, and I pledge my allegiance to him alone. A little while back, I was visiting a, a, quote, Christian school. Um, and they led us on a tour, and they took us to their prayer room. And in their prayer room were signs of every type of religion you could have, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, whatever it might be. And they said, this is a room for people to come and connect with God, their God, whatever that God might be. Will you stand with Jacob and say, there is only one God, the Lord God, He is the awesome provider. He is the great God, the lover of our souls, the great watchman, the judge, the defender. You see, this is constantly under attack today. And it is seen as being uh, arrogant and mean-hearted to say there is only one God. But this true statement is just as strong as the true statement that there is multiple gods. 
It is just, it claims just as much as the other. And so like Jacob, we are called to stand and say, there is only one God and he is the Lord. My friend, Nick, I didn't tell you how I met him. It's nothing grand, really. My brother and his brother were fraternity brothers at another college. And they're both about four years older than us. And one day, my brother Scott called me up and he said, Hey, you know, Nick, Robin's brother, is, is at Mizzou. You should give him a call, see if he'd want to be a part of your fraternity house. And so I'm like, okay, tell me a little bit about him. He said, well, he went to Parkway Central High School. He's Welsh, which is, makes for a lot of good jokes. But anyways, um, and, and so he, he likes soccer. You know, he's kind of, he doesn't have a good roommate, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. At that point in time, I knew about Nick, but I didn't know Nick. It took years of walking with Nick through the highs and the lows of life that I got to know him intimately. You know, at the beginning of this sermon, I said, I pray that through the trials of our life, we would grow in our understanding and our knowledge and our love of God, just as Jacob had through his trials. You know, Jacob went to Haran knowing about the Lord. But after 20 years of trials, he came back knowing the Lord as his God. And so let me ask you the question. Do you know about the Lord, but not know him? Do you know a lot about the Bible or not a lot about what Christianity says, but you have never encountered God for yourself? You don't know him intimately. You may say, well, I don't know. How do I know if I know God personally? Well, we see from this passage, if you know the Lord God, you will be transformed. Just as Jacob was in the New Testament, it's called fruit. If you really know the Lord personally, you will be change. Your heart will be stirred with new affections because you will continue to learn, not just intellectually, but in your heart, that the Lord is a great provider every day. You'll continue to learn not only head, but also in your heart and in your experience, the awesomeness of God as he watches us, as he's judging with justice and as he defends us. But you also learn not just intellectually, but in your heart that the Lord alone is God. If you only know about the Lord, it is easy to know the Lord. You have to trust in that atoning sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Trust him for your salvation and pray to God. Get to know him. If you're here today and you do know God, if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ, let this passage be an encouragement to you to continue to pursue the Lord, knowing him as your great provider, your awesome defender, and as the only true God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for how you have worked in Jacob's life, Lord. As we look at our own lives, we are certainly not perfect by any means. We have a far way to go, God. But I pray if there's anyone here who knows about you, that today they would actually come to know you personally, Lord. Pray for all of us that do know you, that you would grow us in your faith. Remind us of your great provision. Remind us that you are an awesome God. Remind us that you are God alone. Let us live a lifestyle of worship before you. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.